God wants you to think clearly, to be someone who is transformed by liberty there in your mind. Now, the world wants you to think on its terms, but God wants you to be free. And if you really want freedom, then that comes all the way down in your soul, down in your mind, in things which cannot really be corrupted or enslaved by the world unless you let them. In this program, we're going to look at coupling a Bible study with the classics of literature so that you, in your mind, you can be emboldened with the armor of God and invigorated with a sound mind. We're going to look at everything from C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters to Paradise Lost, and a lot of other things are on the table. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there's one other here in the studio with me today. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And everyone just bear with me. Really, we are trying to bring you something of value where you can think clearly. You know, the world has really put us in a place where it's like truth is chocolate poured into a pile of mud, and mm-hmm. you can't tell what is what. It's just a nasty cocktail of indiscernment. But we want to be able to actually give you some tools where we ourselves, you out there in the audience, we can walk in the truth and we can step into critical thinking and navigate this world well. So, Pastor Amanda, would you open us up in prayer as we begin today? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, time and space um, that we may come and gather and talk about you and about your scripture and about how you have revealed yourself even through these various uh, pieces of literature. May we be faithful to respond and faithful to continue to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Kind of opening up there, you mentioned there having eyes to see and ears to hear. Mm-hmm. Critical thinking is something which is not a natural given reality here on this side of Eden. Furthermore, it's not something which you can really turn into a formula. Really, one of the best ways to learn to think critically is to read writing that's done well. And I know that sounds so boring. Please bear with us on this program. We hope that there will be something value at the end. It's going to sound like it's really out there, but I promise you it's not. It's something which can come and rest with you. But Amanda, before we were getting ready to go live today, you were kind of mentioning in our show prep how there's something more to it than just a mere formula to step into. And I'll kind of let you pick up on that. Yeah, well, I think when we talk about critical thinking, if you've ever had kind of a class on ethics or uh, virtues, or I'm trying to think what they call it, um, philosophy and things like that, and you've had to ever study, um, I don't know if you've done, what is it, like those truth formulas to how to figure out if a phrase is true or not, how many false statements in a true statement can be made to make the whole conversation false or true, and it, 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 it can make deciphering truth difficult, even in trying to learn it, because often we've reduced it down to its formulas where it almost becomes something to be manipulated for the sake of lies as well. And then, like you used the example earlier in the opening up the program, it's like chocolate and mud. Um, it's, it can be difficult to really decide what's going on. And yet, at the same time, when we do kind of revisit these classics and other works of literature and other works of art, and we begin to really look at them, although it's not so much do they fit a formula, but they can give us boundaries and systems that we can use, uh, structures that we can use to then begin to evaluate our life. Yeah. And in critical thinking, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, there is great liberty. And mm-hmm. we need that now. We need to be sowing those seeds of upward aspirations where we're thinking clearly. And so let's see what we can do to dive into that. All right. The first thing that I want us to look at is a quote from the Screw Tape Letters. And in that, this demon in hell, and this is a work done by C.S. Lewis, a demon in hell teaching others how to tempt. 
He says, you want a man to not think of doctrines or ideas or anything. You don't want them to think about stuff in the world as being primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. In other words, he's saying you want people to be really concerned about premises, biases, you know, angles, perspectives, but you don't want anyone to ever think that it's true. Hmm. You want somebody to be conditioned to think that they can have incompatible ideas in their mind and be completely fine with that. So that's a bit of a problem because that's how the world actually trains you to think. That's how you get removed from truth. That's how a society starts to fall apart when we do start thinking about things on all the wrong terms. So to kind of begin our conversation today, building off that screw tape letter quote, I want us to talk about beauty because one of the things that the world tells us you can't define is beauty. And I'll actually posit this. I don't think the world outside of God can hmm. because you can't explain why it's good for one person to love another, why it's good to help the poor, why there is beauty in having, say, the Eiffel Tower as opposed to a bag of trash. But with God, you can. And I define beauty as... An approximation to the truth. So how close you can get to God's goodness and God's truth. That is what beauty is. The closer you get to that, the more beautiful that is. So that could be, say, Christ-like love. Maybe it's charity. Maybe it's mercy. Maybe it's justice. Maybe it is the wrath of God which comes to set things right when things go a wicked way. Maybe it's something like the beauty there of the temple in Jerusalem. But that beauty, it is that approximation to truth. And you can find that in music. You can find it in a eloquent statue, a good story, a good movie, and even there in your own home. Amanda, I'll let you kind of step in and respond to that a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I think the reason the world fails so spectacularly to define beauty or now we see kind of like it just simply saying it cannot be defined is because it has defined beauty so poorly in the past. Ah, um, yeah. And so if, if you have said beauty is basically skin deep is these shallow things and of course then not everyone's going to measure up to that beauty and then you have to redefine it and and i think that's where we have and we've seen this in various movements of art and literature and music um but e even today it, it's not that when we talk about aesthetics or if people look pretty obviously that's very conditional to your culture uh to um to the, the common fads of the, the day. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about when yeah. we say beauty. We're saying something a little bit deeper, something a little bit more eternal. Yeah. Now, but that does portray or reveal itself, I think, through the person. Yeah. And it has yeah. nothing to do with what kind of makeup or clothing they, they're wearing. Or for art, it doesn't matter uh, what style it's done in or the music. But it is what is the primary expression, as we've talked before, what is the essence, the ethos of this of this, whatever it is, the person, the painting, uh, the expression of art is. And, and I think that's why, again, like you said, the world fails spectacularly to do this, not in the sense because it's had too many definitions or because it doesn't even have a definition. It's because it never had a good one to start off. It had yeah. just no foundation. And to your point, if you just put it on, say, a really shallow characteristic, well, first of all, shallow characteristics of people fade over time. Right. So that, that in and of itself, by definition, is something which is a diminishing return. It's not ever going to get better. Um, but if you put it on something, say, a little bit deeper, say the beauty of your character being in Christ-like love, well, that is something which can continually get better and better. And as one walks in that holiness of God, you can get closer to that. Mm -hmm. Now, again, 
there might be times where there are lapses, there might be some, some stumblings along the way. But when you look at the true beauty of God, first of all, it doesn't naturally occur. God had to speak the heavens and the earth into existence. And that comes out of the void. God comes and he says, you know, let there be light, there's light. It doesn't happen on its own. God has to put that goodness there. And then it also has to be maintained. God actually mm. puts in the great labor to be maintaining that and pulling it towards there. And beauty, to get close to that goodness of God, the truth, you have to put in the work to do it. It doesn't happen by accident or on its own. And it is something which can have continual uh, reapings, not just that it looked great for a moment and then five minutes from now, you know, it's the ice sculpture that melted or something like that. <laughs> so any other thoughts on that real quick before I get into some commentary that someone had sent to us? Well, I think it's interesting when you said it doesn't happen naturally or I guess... Um, and then you said accidentally, and I think saying accidentally is probably the better way to phrase it because yeah. because things have, God has created that order into that world and that beauty into the world. There is a natural element sure, to it. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so, and that may be nitpicking. I apologize. But no, no, I, it's good I, I to think... clarify that because what what I am saying is it's not the, the accidental mm-hmm. set of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and I don't think, um, although in some forms of art, even those who have tried to forsake uh, God's beauty. They have even sometimes accidentally revealed God's beauty. Yeah. Uh, there's nowhere we can go to escape uh, God or God's yeah. grace. Uh, but even in that, um, it does take discipline yeah. to fully uncover and live into it. Yeah. Well, you kind of have to hold an intention with God is who God is. So mm-hmm. sometimes the prophet Jonah thinks he can run away to Tarshish <laughs> and you find out, no, you can't. Can't do it. You, yeah. He's actually a very successful prophet, even though he's miserable. He doesn't want to be. Yeah. No, totally <laughs> miserable. All right, let me share some thoughts with Pastor Mike Proctor that he had sent to us. And he says, you know, the world around us is a world of evil showing its ugliness. And the people, they want to reject and rebel. But God's people, they should be people pointing to beauty. And that is absolutely true. Those are, are good words, Pastor Mike. He has some other notes. He says, beauty, it's often described as being an experience with the eyes. But true beauty goes beyond the five senses. And it does. It takes us to a place of inspiration, of aspiration, and ultimately transformation. <laughs> beauty is sometimes observed from a distance, even in places like the family. And these beautiful occurrences, like found in the family, they can always be contrasted with the ugliness of the world and things like infanticide. Beauty, it is something where it has this healthy competition where rewards are real. There is this call to virtue where there is this disciplining, and it causes people to aspire for great achievements. Beauty, it is experienced in the mind by inventing and creating. Beauty, it is experienced in sacrifice and love for others. Beauty is experienced in the blessings in both receiving and giving. And beauty is something that is more than meets the eye. It is deep. It is found within us and it resonates with the image of God when we live up to that image as we were created to be, reflecting God and his beauty. So there's some good words there from Pastor Mike. And on that, we're 11 minutes into this. Let's get further into our conversation because we got a lot of scripture and a lot of little quotes that we're going to weave together. And let's get to our first scripture. All right. And it's Romans 12, and it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this reminds us, it tells you, the world is trying to brainwash you. Like, that's not a kooky conspiracy (laughs) ever since the fall. Like, you can, wait, wait, go back before the fall when the serpent is there in the garden. The world is trying to to brainwash you. That's just how it is. But if you want to be free from that, 
you know, throughout Scripture, all the New Testament, God is calling his people, don't think on human terms. Mm. Like time and time again, don't think on human terms. The rarest piece of, of godly thinking is valuable. You know, you can find, you know, Lot there in Solomon and Gomorrah and the question of, do you, will you save 10 people, 20 people, 30 people? He's trying to create this formula, but in the end, God is effectively saying any amount of goodness is worth worth saving. It's It's something which is good. And Pastor Amanda, you kind of found a great quote that illustrates that we have to walk in this one way or another. And mm. you found something in Charles Dickens. I'm going to let you share that with yeah. us. Yeah. Um, so there's a quote from Charles Dickens' book, uh, Christmas Carol. And it is in the scene where, where Marley comes before Scrooge and is about to tell him that the, the, the ghost of Christmas uh, past and present and yet to come are coming to visit him. But before he even gets to that, uh, he, he says this kind of to set up why even Marley is in the situation he is in, why he's kind of the ghost that's now haunting Scrooge. And he says, It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. And so we find, very interestingly, Dickens writes this in a time period where people, unless you were very wealthy, you couldn't travel. You you couldn't like just book your cruise to the Caribbean and, and have a fun time. So I don't think what Marley is saying to, to Scrooge here is so much like go out, you know, in order to live a fulfilled life, you have to visit lots of places. But what he is saying, what he's inviting Scrooge uh, into is to say that you have to live beyond yourself, that to simply uh, to do kind of your the bare minimum, the basics. Later on, uh, Marley will tell him, or Scrooge will tell Marley, you were a good man of business, and Marley will respond with, mankind was my business. Um, What I did as my job was just merely a drop in the comprehensive ocean of my business. And so it is, Charles Dixon's is inviting us into a world that is much bigger than ourself. And what we see also in Romans, where Paul is then writing to his congregation and saying, uh, the world is going to try to uh, sati- satiate your desires. It's trying to kind of keep you calm and give you a false sense of peace. But what God is calling you towards will be something much bigger and will call you and force you to move beyond yourself. And I think what's interesting with Charles Dickens picks up is if you don't do that in this lifetime, uh, at some point, God will reveal God's self to you, even if it is in, in eternity. Uh, the mysteries of the universe will be made known to us, but are we going to live into that now or are we going to wait until uh, the final judgment day where it will be quite terrifying and scary? Yeah, and as scripture tells us, you know, nothing hidden will remain uncovered. Mm-hmm. And we look there that that call that says you actually have to really live, not just survive, but really live, take that far and wide life and step into it. And you have to realize that there are things that are going to try to corrupt you along the way. It's not an easy thing. It is a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And to really understand that, we have to realize that the valley of the shadow of death is also the valley of the shadow of deception. You can look there in Proverbs. The Proverbs have been trying to warn us. There are people, there are things out there that they are robbed of sleep. Proverbs 4.16, they are robbed of sleep until they do evil. Mm. They cannot sleep until they make someone fall. And, you know, Scripture's been warning us there's stuff out there. And the next text I want us to look at, even though I just quoted one Scripture to you, let's go now <laughs> to 2 Peter chapter 2. And this is verses 1 through, its, through 3. So 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, it reads, 
false prophets also appeared among the people. And just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, many will follow their indecent behavior. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So one of the things from that is that there are people who try to inhibit critical thinking from happening. And what's fascinating about this is they really all they have to do is introduce the destructive heresies. You look back there in the garden, the serpent, he does introduce some heresies, even though it's kind of weird to think about it that way, but he comes along and says, did God really say? Mm -hmm. He sets things in motion that when those ideas are in motion, they start to think so that Eve doesn't have to think. Mm. In other words, she can listen to the words, you know, maybe God didn't really say that. That kind of steps in the gap and she doesn't have to think about what God did say. And then other ideas trickle in, like maybe it's just like eating fruit. Eating fruit's generally a good thing. It's good for food. What's the big deal? It's not not a big, big deal. And, you know, with that, the small heresies, they are introduced and they inhibit how we think. Um, and I'll let Amanda respond to that before we get to screw tape, because screw tape says something interesting on how people have been stopped from thinking. Mm. Well, and I think there's some key words that second uh, or Peter uh, pulls out in his second letter, and and that is yeah, secretly introducing uh, the truth will be maligned. There is this um, cloak and dagger kind of language going yeah. on here, where it's not so obvious, and this is, I mean. Peter is writing this within the first century of Christendom, so it's not like they've had a long time uh, to uh, mess this up, but already there are things that are coming into it. Um, And yet, Peter ends this section by saying uh, that their judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, which is just a fantastic image to play. Sure. um, Where the people of God are charged to be critical thinkers, are charged... Uh, to watch out and keep alert. But it is also to say that even if these things get past us, they will not get past God. Um, And we must trust and grow in our faith and our faithfulness with God. And we must draw close to God if we are to catch these things. But at the same time, we don't trust our human knowledge or wisdom or ability to be clever to catch them. Um, Because if we do, we're going to miss it for sure. But even then, that that um, no nobody's gonna deceive God, as we talked about last week. Uh, do not dis- be deceived; God cannot be mocked. Um, people will reap what they sow. Maybe not in this lifetime. And gosh dang it, I wish they would reap it in this lifetime. That would make our lives a little bit easier. Um, well, and maybe they aren't reaping it in this lifetime because we haven't called them out on it. I don't know. But even if they don't reap it in this lifetime, uh, there is one that will come. To bring judgment. Sure. Just and loving, but sure. it will come. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get to Uncle Screw Tape, Sally. Let's see what he says about this. He says, and this is about critical thinking, by the way, and how you can cut people off from their own history and cut people off from thinking clearly. This mm-hmm. is how you get people enslaved to hell. He says, only the learned, only the educated read old books. And we have now so dealt with the learned, the academic types, the the professors, the learned, we have so dealt with them, those who live in the university, that they of all are least likely to acquire wisdom by reading. 
We have done this by introducing ideas like the historical point of view. And something like the historical point of view, to define it briefly, means that when a learned one is presented with any statement or book or item from history, the learned one will never ask if it is true. Instead, they will ask, what is the influence of the ancient writer? How far was that statement in its development? How far is it consistent with other books that this writer may have had? At what phase in the writer's development, at what general part in history does it illustrate? And how has it affected later writers, and how often has it been misunderstood by the people around me? <laughs> and specifically, by the learned man's own colleagues. And what is the general course of criticism that has been in the last 10 years, and what is the present state of the matter? But to regard the ancient writer, the ancient books, the knowledge as a possible source of knowledge and wisdom, as a possible source of truth, to anticipate that what could have been said long ago should modify your thoughts or your behavior, that is to be absolutely and utterly rejected as simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole world and the whole human race at one time, it is important that we cut every generation off from all others. Mm. So you read through that, and it's just phenomenal. C.S. Lewis, from writing this, was literally on fire. Not because he was in hell, um, by the way. Though the demons would probably wanted to, to light him on fire for exposing their, their connivance. Um, what this is saying is people have been... The, the one people that spends time surrounded by the old wisdom is actually the least likely to absorb any of it. Mm. And just it's... It's phenomenal how this is written. And also, I've seen this take place so many times in my life. It's just unreal to read this. And I'll just let you respond to it, Amanda. Well, and I think that going back to the earlier quote we had about not considering what is true or false, but what is con considering what is academic versus practical. And then uh, C.S. Lewis writes some other uh, dichotomies to think of. But I think this is the interesting thing that then he, he picks up again is if we think of things as purely academic or practical, for those who are trying to be practical, they're never going to read the more quote-unquote academic things. And for those who are going to read the more quote-unquote academic things, they are only going to think of it in it so far as its academicness, yeah. not yeah. in its yeah. application. And so by creating one, by creating this false dichotomy, which that is what it is, um, because the academic is not against the practical if it is to be truly academic and the practical can never be over and against the academic. They have to coincide. They yeah. are, you know, they have to be just two different sides of the same coin. Otherwise, they're utterly useless. Yep. But anyways, by creating this false dichotomy, nobody learns. And I think it is interesting, again, like to say to ask for application is therefore simple minded. And for those who are trying to be like the realist to look into these ancient works is to be a waste of time and not to do the real work. It, it, it keeps us from having dialogue, yeah. from having a true conversation. And then as uh, Wormwood or I'm sorry, Screwtape then concludes that section with then every generation is caught up from the others. Well, then you have now you don't even have a division between, you know, Gen X and Gen Y. Now you've got a division even amongst all the Gen X because yeah. we don't want to talk to each other because yeah. you're from that camp, I'm from this camp, yeah. you think this way, I think that way. And and again, to go back then to also the Charles Dickens quote, if we do not read widely, if we do not live widely, then we have, we, we cannot, if we do not engage in those conversations, if we do not, and this, and it's more than just simply 
perspective. Yeah. Although perspective is good. I'm not d- dismissing perspective. But it's more to just say, oh, I did this for this own s- its own sake. Yeah. I read this book because this author checks off a list or a name off my list. It is to say, I have heard something beyond myself. Yeah. And now it needs to speak something into my life. Yeah. Now, that's not, again, not that we take everything at face value. But when we hear of things like Charles Dickens or C.S. Lewis, which I think it's funny we're calling C.S. Lewis a classic and he's less than 100 years yeah. old. I'm not diminishing, again, C.S. Lewis' work. But when we don't read these things and are not expanded beyond ourselves, then we never think about how to relate to a world that is bigger than ourself. Yeah. This really calls us out of some very egocentrical selfishness. Yeah, and to kind of pick up on something you said there, it's more than just a perspective. A lot of times, and this is this is a problem that happens with the breakdown between the academic and then the practical. You know, there in Revelation 3, Christ is calling out there to the church in Sardis saying, you know, even though you have a name that is alive, you're actually dead. Mm. Awaken what remains. You know, there's still work to do, to, to kind of paraphrase those verses. We read something like screw tape and think that is what leads to the calamity. <laughs> the calamity is already there to an extent if your university and your practical people are not working with one another. If they're not living with one another, you've already reached the you're already at the bottom of the slippery slope. Mm. There, there may not be all of the the full birthings of that, but the conception has happened at that point. The the pathology is set in motion and to kind of weave some of this other stuff together kind of building off something you said there going back to charles dickens this idea to actually explore that larger truth in yourself that is the call of christ to step into the way the truth and the life it is something larger than you that christ died and he rose again and you don't just love people because you want that alternative perspective people are made in the image of god every son of adam every daughter of eve made in the image of god you're not going to find a better reason to love somebody than that you're not going to find something more valuable than that And also there's goodness that is there that is irreplaceable, that you can't really explain outside of God. The beauty of God that we've already started talking about today, you cannot explain that outside of God. Mm. And I want us to now change gears a little bit. We're going to go towards John Milton's Paradise Lost, and I want us to talk a little bit about rebellion. Because to understand beauty, you really have to understand rebellion. I mean, that's not necessarily the case. If we lived in Eden, you wouldn't have to to do that. But we're fallen (laughs) creatures kind of cut off from God in an irrational insanity. So seeing the depravity, the rebellion, that kind of helps us out a little bit. And do you have anything you want to add before we get to the rebellion? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Rebellion real quick. There's a few quotes that I want us to look at from Paradise Lost. And I highly encourage anybody out there, work through some of these old books, these old stuff. Paradise Lost is really good. It's really painful to read. It's like reading the book of Job. And Amanda's over there kind of laughing yeah. at it a little bit. It is, it is so hard to read. Get the 1674 version of it and then listen to it. There's a version of it that you can listen to for free on YouTube that has the actor who played Palpatine, Ian McDermott. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Yeah, I don't know either. But the guy who plays Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars, he does the voice of Satan. That is the version you want to listen to. Even though he's not the main reader, it's just it flows really well. Having different readers do different characters always makes something easy to listen to. Mm. Um, But what we find in Paradise Lost, and this has shaped Western civilization a lot, and it's, it's fine. Paradise Lost is 
a commentary on Scripture. It's not something which just happens by accident. A lot of people say, oh, well, that comes from Paradise Lost, not from Scripture. Well, Paradise Lost is built on top of Scripture, so it's, it's okay to kind of go through that door. Um, but Satan, he makes the statement, he says, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Hmm. And he's got his other demons and fallen angels around him. Mammon is one of them. And Mammon is giving advice to Satan on what they should do, ruling in hell rather than serving in heaven. And they all know that hell is miserable. Hell, hell is awful. It's, it's on fire. There is no light of God down there. It's painful. It's just eternal torment upon eternal torment. And they know this. They know it's awful. But they prefer that to the beauties of heaven. And Mammon, he makes a great statement back to Satan. He says, this desert soil, this wretched place which we're in, it doesn't want hidden luster, gems, or gold. It doesn't want skill or art or anything from which we might raise magnificence or what heaven might show us. No, what we want is that our torments, the suffering down here in hell, that in time they might become our elements, that these piercing fires around us, as soft as they now might be severe, our temper changed into their temper, which needs remove the senses of pain. And what he is saying there, I know it's, poetic, and I paraphrased it a little bit because it's awful to read, but it's really important that you read it, is he's saying this place is horrible. It's awful, but we don't want to make it beautiful. No, no, no. What we want to do is we want to become one with the fires. We want to make the fires our own. We want to make the suffering down here that which pleases us. We want to reject God and rebel against his goodness to the point that we tempt all the world into believing that the pain down here is what is good. The goal is the pain. The goal is the grievance. The goal is to wail, to weep the gnashing of teeth. The goal is the indignity Hmm. to desire that. And then after Mammon says this, the narrator, he kind of wraps all this up. He says, the demons, they dreaded something worse than hell. They feared the thunder and the sword of Michael, which wrought still in them, and no less desire to find found this neither empire, which might rise by policy, but instead what they looked for was over the long processes of time an emulation opposite of heaven. In other words, what the, the demons want is they wanted to create something which mimicked heaven in opposite of heaven. And I'll just let Amanda step in there. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, again, this is a, it is a difficult text to read and, and to gather thoughts on. But I think through, through all three of these uh, quotes, we can begin to see kind of the frame of what hell is up to. And again, we see that um, we are reminded in Scripture where it calls it that Satan is the, you know, and he dresses himself up as an angel of light. And really that Lucifer means that, light bearer. Um, but we have this, this concept that's coming to us or this, this illustration that heaven wishes or hell wishes us to believe that it is heaven. Um, so that we are, we're tempted to it. And and what, what's truly amazing also in this is that it's not even going to always tempt us with the luster, the gems, the gold, the skill, or the art, things that are magnificent, it is going to tempt us sometimes with things that we know are painful, yeah. that do not produce 
good things in our lives, even temporarily, although there are temptations that seem momentarily acceptable, that sometimes the things that are going to get us, we know are bad for us, but we have yeah. been so convinced that they will produce some kind of good. Yeah. And and I think this is where an emulation to opposite, because you would think, how can you be both mimicking and yet opposite to something? But because it is a mockery of it. Yeah, it, it is it, a mockery of it. It, it serves as um, both the imitation, but also the the drastic opposite of it. And I also think, like we've heard, I think we've all probably heard the phrase "better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven," and that becomes often in the context I have heard that phrase being repeated in more modern uh, works of literature and movies and television has been almost this uh, this call to free will. Like you know, it's better to choose to 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 rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And you're like, well, wait, to actually live into the call that we have been created in, the image we've been created in, which is uh, free will and creativity and, and imagination and beauty, to use that free will not to cause us to be... Because even a ruler in hell is still a servant of something. Yeah. A, yeah. a slave to evil, a slave to destruction and pain. Yeah. And so to use our free will is not to rightly to rightly use our free will is not to choose to be a ruler in a false kingdom but it is actually defined by serving others that we've become co-heirs with christ it, yeah. it's, it's interesting how all this is this is twisted and and i it, don't know it is twisted yeah. there's a, a, a brokenness that happens here and i don't mean that in the way that we conventionally use the word brokenness there's there's a fracture in the logic because they're still slaves in hell mm-hmm. they're slaves to the misery and they're they're of course slaves to satan he's their their ruler down there the father below but the kind of the flip side of that, when one actually makes good on the call that God has on you there in Genesis 1, he makes men and women in his image that they would be the rulers of this terrestrial domain. So even in being servants, they are rulers. And then those who want to be rulers end up being servants anyway. So it's one of these things where it's kind of the Prince Caspian paradox where because you did not want to rule, you are fit to rule. Those who who made good on their, their calling to be a servant actually end up ruling. And those who wanted to reject that and choose the path of ruling, they end up servants anyway. I'm, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, although history has not always been just, I, I think we see any time a ruler tries to rule with an iron fist, they, they usually end up on the wrong side of a guillotine So, or, or of a revolution. So uh, it is interesting that, that those of people who wish to try to gain everything for themselves, who wish to hoard resources and blessing, will find that they are the emptiest people ever. And again, yeah. sometimes they don't get that judgment in this lifetime, although we wish they would. Um, the, when eternity continues to roll on, they, they will receive their reward in full. Yep. And, and here's the thing, like this is why Satan, demons, evil wants you to bring wants to bring you down to its level is because it is miserable yeah it is not because it's happy and wants others to join in its joy or in its success it's because if it can't have anything good why should everyone else have it yeah there there is nothing freeing about what evil is trying to do and although it may dress itself up um it, it is it is a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones and you know Kind of going back to you were mentioned the temptation. Sometimes hell doesn't have to give you a great temptation. Like it really is phenomenal how many times in scripture people are sold over by like pathetic stuff. <laughs> um, the first thing that popped in my mind when you mentioned that is Genesis 25 with Jacob and Esau. And 
the scripture reads in uh, Genesis 25, it says, When Jacob had cooked stew one day, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And he said, this is Esau to Jacob, he said, Please let me have a mouthful of that red stuff there, for I am exhausted. And therefore he was called Edom by name. And Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. What is the use of a birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. And he swore an oath and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and went on his way. And so it was in this way that Esau despised his birthright. And in that scripture, he throws away. No, no, no. Scripture says he despised Mm. his birthright for nothing. And even when you look there in Matthew 16, Verses 15 and 16, they, it's, it's an interaction between Judas and the, the priest, the chief priest, and the, all the you know, authorities that want to, or officials that want to conspire against Jesus. Judas says to them, he says, what are you willing to give me to betray him? And they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. And you know, historical perspective, people want to do the math. Well, how much is 30 pieces of silver? This is a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. Any amount of money. Imagine somebody comes to you and says, how would you like to backstab your master? Like, how much money do you think you could pay a dog to backstab their, their <laughs> owner? Like, I don't think you're giving 30 pieces of silver, no matter how much or how little that is to mm-hmm. a dog to convince them to want that. Like, this is just stupid to throw away Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I don't care whether it's the equivalent of $30 billion or 30 cents. That's something which is just stupid to do. It's, it's a really stupid thing to do to exchange Jesus for money. But yet people do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, the devil doesn't actually have to give you something which is a nice temptation. You know, we think about the temptations that are like gross and sexual in nature, like to have prostitutes galore or whatever. But in the fact, the devil doesn't have to give you that. He can just give you something really cheap and you'll, you'll take it and throw away, you know, marriage. You'll throw away a life of, of happiness. I mean, I'll let you well, step in. this. that reminded me there was a meme I saw recently online. I'm sure it's, it's not a new meme, but it was talking about the song, uh, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Yeah. And the guy is going to trade his soul for a fiddle of gold. And so everyone's like, okay, what's the worth of a fiddle of gold? And and someone had worked out like the size of a, vi- of a, a fiddle or a violin. And then if you put made it out of pure gold, how much that would be cost. And so they're like, I forget what the number was, but basically this is how much your soul's worth. And, and, and again, it seems kind of silly, even if it's worth a lot, which anything solid gold, I would imagine, is worth a lot. But it seems like that would at least be a better return than selling your birthright for a bowl of soup. Oh, yeah. Definitely a better return. (laughs) But even then, even then, if the fiddle of gold's worth more than the bowl of soup for Esau... um, Still a bad... Still bad value in the course of eternity. But (laughs) it is better, but still a total (laughs) fail. But, you know... Well, and that's the thing. You, You have surrendered your life. You have surrendered. And again, not just your soul in the sense of one day it's going to go to hell, but you have surrendered the essence of who you are for something that is momentary and something that is insufficient to provide any kind of real life. Yeah. And it it fascinates me. It, it, It just it's interesting to me. Obviously, we can look at the story of Jacob and Esau and be like, Esau wasn't wrong. We can look at a a song like the devil went down to Georgia and be like, that's silly. And then yet, how much we're willing to surrender our essence, our character, our life force, who we are in the pursuit of things that are so shallow. And and they may have some real world application. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but how much we're willing to sell ourselves to these ideals 
that honestly would turn around and backstab us. And, yeah, and, and yeah. we have to, when we are talking about critical thinking, when we are talking about uh, pursuing the image of God that we are created in, being that which we were created to be, it is something about looking at things in a deeper perspective and asking the hard questions, knowing that we may not figure everything out to the end of a pencil point, but where we are pursuing something bigger than ourselves that calls us something to more than just what makes sense in the moment. Yeah. Or, and, and I think it's also funny, sorry, like Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Could he have not walked to like his father or his mother's tent and asked for some soup? Like, are you telling me there's just no one else around? <laughs> like, it, it just, the, the, I, I, I mean, and I think, yeah, the, the biblical writer who says he despises um, and whatever that ancient Hebrew word that he uses, but just it's not just that Esau disregarded his, um, but he thought so little of it. He couldn't yeah. even think for more than a moment, how could I make a better deal here? <laughs> Get yeah. more out of this. Yeah, it's it's terrible. It's it's just absolutely terrible. Um, so for something a little bit more contemporary. Okay. So there is something which exists out there, Bioshock. And it is it is a video game, but it's actually a very well put together, very thoughtful video game that basically tells the story of um, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, a, a world that rejects both God and kings, and ultimately it's a world without beauty. And kind of this whole story that's built up in there, it opens up with the words, you know, no gods, no kings. And it creates a hell in doing this. Mm-hmm. But there's a doctor that lives down in this world, and he makes a statement which really shows you this rebellion of Satan. And he says, today I had lunch with the goddess. And Steinman, she said, she said, I'm here to free you from the tyranny of the commonplace. In other words, I'm here to free you from the tyranny of God's order. She said, I'm here to show you a new kind of beauty. And I asked her, what do you mean, goddess? Symmetry, dear Steinman, it's time we do something about symmetry. And what happens in this world is they take the logic of Picasso, who made kind of strange cubes and kind of called those people. They want to do that with real people in flesh and blood. Mm. To do away with the symmetry that we generally have as people and just chop people up. And it's hell. They kill people doing what is a, a murderous evil, but they do it in the name of art, in the name of beauty, out of rebellion of the real beauty of God. And what we find is that as... Satan says there in Paradise Lost, he says, you know, in the mind you can make a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell. And whenever people rebel against God, they do these sort of things. They say it's time we do something about symmetry. It's time we make the world in our image. And one of the things which I think is so so fascinating to me, and this is where we'll get a little bit more into pop culture. You see, did you ever watch much of the animated Batman series? The one, the Tim verse one from the 90s. You familiar with that much? Oh, a little bit. I, I more watched the Justice League that came a little after. Okay, it, well, that's I'm the familiar same. with it. Well, yeah. One of the things which is really interesting to me is the villains, and you can find this beyond that, the villains very regularly, whenever they set up a base for their, like, thuggish, you know, abode, they mimic what the people look like. I mean, you can see, like, the Jim Carrey, uh, oh, gosh, what's his name? He was in Men in Black. Um when he played Two Face, oh, um, that's not Jim Carrey. That's um, um, Tommy Jim, Lee. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy when Tommy Lee, Lee Jones. Jones is Two Face, and Jim Carrey is the Riddler. Riddler. Yeah, you can see in their layers how they they create the layer in their image. Like oh, evil yeah. does this all the time. 
Like when you're in the two-faced layer, everything is two-faced. You know, the room is <laughs> half split in half. half. Yeah. yeah. But it, it fascinates me how quick people are in their rebellion. And you see this in comics and stuff like that, how they want their layer to mimic themselves. And when Arnold plays Mr. Freeze, everything's <laughs> frozen. But there is this, this desire to rebel against God and remake the world in our image. And I'll kind of let you pick up there. Yeah, well, you know, I, this might be a slight bunny trail off of that, but I think it's interesting. I was just talking, um, my mom, my sister, and I are, are reading a, a book together, and we were discussing it, and the difference between carnal anger, anger and godly anger. And there is a difference, and although yeah. we might say anger is anger, but this this idea of um, when we want to reorder the world, to what end are we reordering it? Yeah. And carnal anger will wish us to reorder the world in chaos, right? Um, It is the ones that say, uh, you know, regardless of if you think Picasso uh, makes pretty pictures or not, but to take that idea and to say then let's just throw symmetry out the the door, not so much just in our art, but that we mutilate people, to to use the Bioshock reference. that that is that is very much carnal anger. Yeah. But then where godly anger comes in, it says where the world is unjust, where it has put value in symmetry yeah. over unsymmetrical things, face value, <laughs> quite <laughs> literally, face value. <laughs> face value into these things. God sees something deeper, yeah. and so whether or not your face is symmetrical, it becomes secondary to the fact of is your life in order is your life symmetrical to christ right and so that that is where and although we may look at things in either recent uh events or in history and past history and say well this place this group of people did a revolution this group of people did a revolution these people rebelled those people rebelled and we try to equate all this yeah but what we got to be asking ourselves is to what end and again not just that the means just or the ends justify the means not to oversimplify that either but to say, where are we going with this? Yeah. Where, in whose image, to use the Batman reference, are we reordering our lives? Yeah, and there's a couple of things that come to my mind. You know, in Ephesians 4, it says, be angry, but do not sin. And it shows you that there is a difference from that. God is slow to anger, but it doesn't say he doesn't get anger. And we mm-hmm. know that God is not enticed by sins. You can look in the letter of James and find that. And James even tells you the wrath of man does nothing to satisfy the righteousness of God. So there, there is a difference between that honest Christian anger that actually says we're here to repulse evil, to cast out the demons. And that it moves act- us to action. We yeah. can act out of anger yeah, if it is godly anger. Yeah, that, there's actually a place for that. Scripture's pretty clear about this, actually. <laughs> it's not easy for us to find that spot, but it's also not easy for us to find the right spots of mercy and charity, either, because a lot of times that turns into enabling and, and other stuff. The straight and narrow pathway is straight and narrow on all avenues. Mm. And you know, you, you talk about how the chaos wants to rule. That's actually one of the things that Mammon says there in a little bit further down from that passage I read from Paradise Lost. He eventually says something to the effect of, by lottery, may chaos be the judge. Mm. And he's essentially saying God is the one who sits on the, the judgment seat and gets to judge the living and the dead. But maybe, maybe by chance, we could come in and rip him out and by winning the, you know, just by chance, by lottery, perhaps for once chaos will get to rule the day. And, you know, it's mm. always wicked. It always turns out like uh, Bane and the Scarecrow in The Dark Knight Rises where they sit up there and it's a heads you lose, tails 
we win sort of <laughs> scenario there. And it's it's really bad. Yeah. Um, just kind of wrapping this up, though. Another scripture I want to share, actually getting into beauty and kind of repulsing this stuff back, kind of weaving all this stuff together so you can walk in truth. You can think critically. You We have to step up to the plate of being critical thinkers because there are a lot of things that want to remake the world in their image. We have to have the vision of what it looks like to be Christian people who are persevering. We're not yet in that moment after Christ is dead and living in the dead, though I hope we all are there. We're not in Eden, so there has to be restraints against evil. And there's evil to be repulsed. We're not going to have that utopia, but you can shine the light. You can open up a window, a portent into heaven where people can come to know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And there are two scriptures that I kind of want to wrap us up with, um, even though I've got a whole much more over here in the show notes. But for now, let's just wrap up with these two out of Psalms. And the first is from Psalm 50. In the first two verses, it says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, and out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown. So from that, God is actually concerned with beauty. It's a lot bigger than face value, as Amanda said earlier. And I think that's the first time I've ever heard the word face value be used literally. (laughs) That's the first for me. And I think I saw the gears turning over there for you, too. We were like, wait, we're using this literally today. (laughs) It was an unintended pun, but it worked. An unintended, unintended literal use. Um, The next scripture I want to share is from Psalm 96, verses 5 and 6. And it says, For all the gods of all the peoples are idols, and the Lord has made the heavens. Hmm? Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Hmm. So we look at this, and God does care that you actually get close to the good. He wants you to walk into it. Beauty, not just something which is momentarily pleasing but, but you know, flees, it, it fades away, but something which actually draws you close to the goodness of God, God cares about that. And I know I said I was going to wrap it up with the Psalms. Let's, let me have a little touch of Genesis <laughs> real quick. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, a, earth was a formless void, a desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And then as that chapter starts to wrap up, Genesis 1, on the sixth day, in verse 26 it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and all over all the earth, over the crawling things, the creeping things that crawl along the earth. And so God created men in his own image, and he created them male and female. Now, the reason why I wanted us to read that is to tie back into something you said earlier, Amanda, about the, the service to God and how that actually makes us rulers in a strange way. But in hell, the desire to rule in hell ends up making you a slave to everything of torment. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting how all of that works out. And I'll kind of let you respond to Psalms or Genesis, however you'd <laughs> like, and just take it from there. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a lot covered in this passage, but I think we see this, that God is always has always been a God of order and of creation. And God is always moving us towards a place of order and creativity. And although we cannot create like God creates, we are created in that image that calls us uh, to bring about life. And we even see that in the next verse where he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, that call to be fruitful and more multiply has... M- it's more than just procreation. 
And subduing the earth has more, it means more than simply subduing the earth to our ends. Yeah. It is about cultivating life in whatever capacity we are responsible for. You know, um, both Dylan and I have dogs that we are, are caretakers of. Uh, neither of us are parents, but we participate in the mission of God by caring for our pets, by p- caring for our congregation. And so this command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth— this command towards order is more has more to it than simply being. Um, well, it's, it's like many things that we find in Scripture, where the the great virtues of God they they are not limited to just the letter of the law. Right. Though, of course, they do have some connection to. Well, that. and that's what. Yeah. No, we would never discount the awesome responsibility of parents. We yeah. are grateful for our, our many good parents that have influenced us throughout our lives, but. To see this, and, and also to start with, this is the command God first gives his creative order. This is yep. before the, the don't eat of the the, um, the tree. This is before yep. all that. This is simply, I have created you with yep. purpose. And the God who said, let there be light, is still the God today that speaks light into our darkness. Yep. And it is still the same God who speaks to us that says, I have created you for a purpose. And that purpose is not to turn around and go towards disorder. But to find, uh, to create, and to cultivate order in the world around you. And, you know, very basic and very clearly built into these passages of Genesis is that you, as a man and woman created in his image, and again, it's pretty clear about that. He created them male and female, both men and women. You are not called just to exist so something else can think for you, that something else can brainwash you, and you can just be subjugated to the wiles of evil on this earth. These creatures, this particular creature, this unique species, it is meant to have a distinctive place where it is doing something with its free will. It is taking a place of of royalty amongst the earth. It's not just something to be cast aside and ruled by others, to be beat into submission by the, the jaws of hell, but it is meant to be something which has that aspiration where it's doing something noble. And there is a level of achievement and excellence which is found just in the nature in which this unique creature is made. And at the end of this, there in verse 31, God looks upon this creature and he says, it is very good. And Very good. Yes, very good. Um, and it's just interesting to see that. So as we wrap up this program today, which we're right at time, <laughs> I want us to think about how going back, reading through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, and I know it can get really, really nerdy really quick, um, <laughs> Normally, I say send us your pitchforks to 6186 Eaton's Creek Road. If you need to come over here and, you know, give somebody a wedgie, <laughs> um, I will be over here at 6186 Eaton's Creek Road. You can come over here and try. We'll see how well that works out. <laughs> um, but do spend some time looking at this and think freely. You know, one of the things that Screw Tape talks about there is the desire to have people to think only in those terms of what is perspectives, biases. That is how... I had been trained to think for so many years, both in, you know, higher education and just the culture around us. But then once you actually start to realize that that may be a deception to keep you from actually looking at the truth, start asking the question, what is true? You know, don't just fall into the trap of saying, well, did a prophet ever come from Galilee and Jesus came from Galilee and Nazareth, therefore away from him. And then Nicodemus, you think you're going to say that something could come from Galilee? Nicodemus, we saw where you're from too. Out of here, you know. (laughs) 
Don't be, don't be that. Which is fascinating because don't they use the 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 prophet that says he will be born in Bethlehem to even find him with the magi? They do, like, they do. Very that inconsistent is, yes, logic. Yes, that is correct. But <laughs> well, but that's what you get when you get separated from truth. That's you. I mean, screw tape yeah. says it. You can have people hold things in their mind that are just inconsistent. And they're fine with it. Be someone who thinks freely because the world right now it wants you to belong to all the forces of the world. It wants you to love the things of the world, to be more invested in governmental stuff, cultural stuff, than anything to do with truth and to never pay attention to the neighbors around you. Mm -hmm. God has gifted you life for a time such as this. Love the people in the world around you. Think freely. Be someone who looks for that truth. And as John writes there, there's great joy to see the children of God walking in the truth. So, Amanda, do you have any final thoughts before we close? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Would you close us in prayer then? Yes, I will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we start off by thanking you for who you are and how you have acted in the lives of your people. We thank you for the blessings that you have given us, how you have created us and empowered us. And so now as we have had this conversation, may you continue to speak to your people that we may be a means of grace to the world around us, and may we continually seek to be close to you so that we will know what is true, what is perfect, and what is pleasing. Give your people peace, we pray. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And on that note, thank you for joining us. God love you, and have a blessed day.